Well, we are recording on Father's Day, and we're going to be talking about Sky Daddy and Hell Daddy mm-hmm. uh, in this episode. Uh, I guess, I you know, are you doing anything special for Father's Day? Are you going to go to church or go to Satan's <laughs> uh, Black Mass? Uh, yeah, the two fathers of my life, yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. No, no, just the dinner with my dad. He's he's coming out to L.A. and uh, we're oh nice at somewhere. We uh, he's become so for his birthday, which was back in March. Is he still in Oxnard? Yeah, he lives in he lives in Oxnard. Okay, I'm trying to dox my dad here, but yes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a beginning of town, I guess. Um, but uh, he came to L.A. for his birthday in March. And then we went to dinner at El Coyote, which people would know from the ending of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's where Sharon Tate went on the last day she was alive. Uh, okay. The last meal she ate was there. And so in in the movie, they show them going there. And it's it's literally down the street from New Beverly. And so you get the joke of like, you know, oh, there's a premiere down the street at that porno theater. It's the New Beverly, which Quinn owns. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. So we went to the El Coyote. I had been before. Uh, he hadn't. He loved the food. He was obsessed with the food. So for my birthday, less than a month later, he basically like pressured me into picking El Coyote again to, like, for dinner. So we went to El Coyote again within the span of a month. <laughs> so today, for Father's Day, he's once again threw out the idea of going back to El Coyote for dinner. He like I think this is the only way I'm gonna be able to get him to come visit me is just to like offer to buy him food at El Coyote now. That's you know that's lovely though, you know, you you find something that he likes and wants to bond yeah. over. I it's also kind of funny that, you know, from the South, my father as well, I don't think he's ever lived anywhere else besides like the general vicinity of his hometown. Yeah. And he came out to visit, and we went to Screen Door, which is a a southern place here. And when he came back to visit, just like last year, I was like, so is there anything you want to do? Anything that you would want to see? And the one spot he wanted to go was <laughs> back to Screen Door for brunch. Oh, man. Incredible. Because you can't get... I mean, it. trust me, it's really good chicken and waffles, but... Right. <laughs> but it's that's... not like you can't get it anywhere else yeah they also do really good uh praline bacon which is oof oh man so but it's, that's the only the place best. he can he can get a taste of home in portland where he feels like <laughs> right everything's yeah. not everything's I... not a too i don't know woke or like <laughs> Hips, hipsterfied right there you go well yeah. you know there's actually quite a few southern restaurants around here there's a lot of expats oh nice and you know really so yeah um, well, we were just trying to think of something to talk about, but we can jump right into it, because <laughs> yeah. it's a new month, baby. We are talking the sultry month of July. It's also the anniversary of this podcast. We started in July. Uh, Greg, you remember the first theme that we covered? I mean, yeah, of course. It was Killer Object Month, you know, the the geniusly titled, uh, <laughs> yeah, first month of this podcast. You know, we had to, you know, dip our toes in a little bit before we get our hair wet, you know, and start making puns out of right. the theme names, um, which is what we're doing now. We are <laughs> in the middle of July here on The Weekly Podcast Massacre. 
I am your host for this episode. My name is Michael from Portland, but everyone calls me Murphy. I have a lovely co-host with me. Yeah, hi. I'm Greg from Los Angeles, except for this month. Last month, I was Grub because of June bugs. This month, I, right. I'm, I'm Greg, but the, the E in my name is a three. So uh, just mm. please take that into consideration each time you say my name. So it's like a, a Megan situation. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yes. Is that going to be the sequel? Uh, Greg? Oh, I would love that. Greg. The, the male counterparts, Megan? Oh, dude. Yeah. Get us in there. We Get us on the call with Jason Blum. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, we can't write it right now, but, you know, solidarity. But, abs- yes, uh, as soon as things are wrapped up um, in, like, five years. Uh, <laughs> but, uh no, I, uh, yeah, if you want to call me Grthrig, you can, but it also Greg is easier, I guess. Greg, yeah. <laughs> you just say Megan. You don't say Mithrigan. I've heard a lot of Mithrigan out there. Uh, well, that is what we're talking about this month. We're talking about the third movie in a series, a trilogy, some sort of continuation of a story. Here in Three Lie. (laughs) Very inventive, I know. Um, So today, we are going to be talking about maybe one of the most controversial series. um, Where usually it's generally the first one is the best and every other one is dog shit. There's some differing opinions on this one especially. But we are talking about The Exorcist 3. Yeah. A technical sequel to I mean, it the is. first yeah. Exorcist. You got yes. characters that cross over, like the plot is directly related. Um I would say it's, it's true. It's more it makes more sense as a sequel than Exorcist 2 does, like a lot more sense. Well, and that's because it is the returning author of the original yeah. novel who who knows what he wanted to do with these characters, with these ideas. Uh, so the first one was 75, I believe. Um, I so, remember yeah. you just watched two as well. I don't remember what year that was, but it was like maybe 80-something? Uh, 77. 77, wow. So very yeah. close after. I remember Linda Blair is still very young in that one. Yeah, she was 17 um, when they shot that, yeah. Wow. Uh, and this one, we jumped to 1990, although... The book that it is based on came out in 83, Yeah, if I remember correctly. Um, so let's just run through it a little re- bit. Real um, quick, the first exercise was 73. It just, it's something ah, that said, okay. said it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes a bit more sense, yeah. Uh, which, great movie. Rewatched it again last night, fucking perfection. Oh, yeah. it is, Amazing. It holds up so well. Yeah. Brittany had never seen it. She was also very, like, into it. I want you to finish what you're going to say a moment ago, but also I do have something about rewatching the first one uh, just a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to say, yeah, that the original Exorcist, the novel written by uh, William Peter Blatty, he comes back to direct. Well, he wrote the novel, he's writing the screenplay, and he's directing this movie. He's yeah. doing a hat trick on us producing i'm sure as well uh but he was well he might have been his first choice to direct did you read who he wanted to direct this movie but who he met with and apparently mm-hmm. like uh formed a friendship Hit it with? off yes yeah right right but yeah he talked to john carpenter yeah 
a little-known guy named John Carpenter. And I guess, apparently, as they were talking, they were, you know, describing how to film this, um, it was obvious to John Carpenter that this guy really wants to direct this movie. I should just let him. Yeah, I saw, like, two different differing reports on this. One said that, like, I guess Carpenter and him just... They had disagreements about it, and knowing how surly Carpenter can be, like, I really wonder if, like, what they're, how that played out. Was it just like, oh, hey, you know, if I were to do it, I would do it like this, and Blatty's like, eh, I don't think that's cool, whatever. The, Absolutely the way you, not. The way you put it seems a lot more amicable. Um, yeah. Right. But uh, it was interesting, though, so this would have been ni- 1990. This is right around the time he does do Prince of Darkness. Which mm-hmm. not a like a totally similar movie, but dealing with Satan and evil and the nature of like you know, uh, there the general like badness in the vibe world. that it's that there's like a still water, but below that, like it's starting to bubble and right. boil over. Yeah, exactly. So, but so I mean, like, he is in, in in a sort of mode around this time that I think actually could have been kind of cool for him to take on an exorcist movie like this that would have been interesting um ultimately i'm very happy Blatty got to direct his own writing because like it brought he really brings something to this uh something really fascinating yeah there is an interesting vision and it is you know bizarrely fascinating that it is an author adapting their own work and you know it's in a novel you you can't show anything you have to tell it you have to tell it in words. Yeah. Um, and he does a little bit of that in this movie, but he also knows just, like, how to choose cinematic images. Dude. And angles, like, he, the yeah. whole shots that he picks. That's what I was going to say next. Are... It's like, his shot compositions are really unlike well, anybody else's. He Right. And it, it's really impressive, and it goes beyond just, like, like I mean, oh, he's a novelist and he's he knows how to tell these things verbally, whatever. But just the way he like has such wide shots in such enclosed spaces, and the way he's yes. positioning actors around the screen, and then the rhythm which they talk within these spaces, something about it feels like there's an emptiness to this movie in a way that works for it. I mean, like it's going for that. You know, because right. like there's it's cramped rooms, but people are spread apart usually. Right, and then they're also kind of talking slow. Like there is just something kind of like there's a huge gap between people in this, which is really fascinating. The one that uh, jumped out to me both times is when they're in Father Dyer's hospital room after things have happened. Yes, yes, and it's the yeah. three detectives, and it's like the cameras in the corner. Just, like, looking down on them, and That's, I'm just like, God, you're not cutting for a while, you're just, like, letting us live yeah. in the shot, and it's it's very wonderful. That's yeah. the exact um, shot I was thinking of talking about it just now. Yeah, amazing it's, stuff. And it's also so the, good. And also yeah. the thunderstorm starts right then as they're talking, and so it just adds this right. other, like, little cinematic touch where, as they're speaking, rain starts falling, and yeah. it's like, yeah, it, it, oh, God, so good. <laughs> Even before that, getting into that room is a POV shot of Kinderman, and you have all the people, yeah. like, doing whatever, and then they stop to look at him as he's coming through. Yeah, great and it's, POV it's, shots. It's random and it's bizarre, but there's a cop right next to the door, and when you settle into the, the doorframe, there's just this wonderful shadow to the on the left of the screen. It's mm-hmm. just, it's it looks amazing. I don't know what else to say about it. It's just very yeah. cool. 
Um, to go back to watching to rewatch the first one again, real quick. Yes. Of course, I was happy you picked this because it's tangentially related to William Friedkin, who I've been obsessed with lately uh, since I listened to his book after the bug episode. And uh, so I was like, okay, I'm going to rewatch the first one, and I have it on Blu-ray. I actually have uh, an Exorcist four pack with all four movies, and so I was like, um, technically all five Wait, movies because the... there's yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, what's the fourth and fifth one? Is it Dominion and the beginning? It, yes, exactly. Yeah, Dominion being the Paul Schrader one. A, and then the beginning a is... A legacy one? Uh, not yet. No, coming up this year, supposedly. Oh, okay. Directed by David Gordon Green, everyone's favorite, uh, everyone's friend yeah. from the Halloween reboot series. I know, I, I know. What the fuck, man? Like... <laughs> You know, he was supposed to direct Suspiria, too. He was, like, on board to do it. Um, Interesting. I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then somehow it ended up in Luca's hands and the world became a better place. Uh, we narrowly dodged, like, a, you know, cinematic bullet with that. But, um, you know, I liked Halloween <laughs> Ends. I, def- I, I publicly defended it on this podcast, but, yeah. Cinematic uh, bullet. So, anyway, I, like I, I, I have them on, on Blu-ray, so I... I popped it in and i was like you know what i i wonder i put in the director's cut of the original i was like had my fingers crossed because it wasn't on the package it didn't say if i had it or not but i was like please give me a william friedkin commentary on the exorcist i would love that would love to hear more of his voice been missing it since i finished the book he does do a commentary it is a style of commentary i hate though it's like i don't know if you ever listened to arnold schwarzenegger ever do a commentary for a movie but uh, I have not, but I read your letterbox review, so I can imagine yes. how how Schwarzenegger would be. Yeah, uh, he's almost like a big kid. Kind of yes. Oh yeah. When you watch, because I watched like the Conan one, the Conan Barbarian one, which is great. It's very funny, and I think with Schwarzenegger, this works better because it's Arnold, and you want to hear him speak more. Mm-hmm. But it's like. Um, you know, it's like, and yes, and here I am pushing the wheel, and yes, it is making me strong. I push it for about 15 years, <laughs> and thus, yeah, here I am. This is the first shot of me, you know, and it's like, that's essentially what Freakham is doing. It's just like, you know, we see Father Karras enter the room. He's feeling bad about this. You know, it's like, he's telling you their feelings, <laughs> and he's like, you know, Father Marin asks us, he asks us if he's okay, and it's like, <laughs> I don't think we really needed to hear this. But And then sometimes, occasionally, he would tell a pretty interesting story about, like, filming it, or he would be like, and, you know, and in this scene, this is, the to me, the crux of his emotional journey, and I'm like, okay, that I can get behind, like, actually explaining what you feel your interpretation of the material is right here. That, that to me, works. But, right. Because yeah. that's, I mean, that's what you're doing as a director, is you're interpreting on the page, you're putting it on the screen. Yeah. You hope that people, like, are interpreting it correctly, that they're reading it as you intended, but you never really know. That That is one of the things about creating art. Yeah, it did still strike me as, like, an anti-Lynch, not anti-Lynch, but the opposite of Lynch. Because, you know, Lynch obviously, of course, never explains anything, right? Or he talks uh, about it. He talks around things. Um, I, f- I do have a question for you. Yeah. Have you ever seen William Freakin and David Lynch in the room at the same time? No, and I have not. However, there is a small connection between their work that will pop up in this. I mean, very tangentially, but uh, that's about it. I never, no, I, I haven't even really seen them compared, really, or like know if they know mm-hmm. each other or anything like that. 
uh, I have a feeling they wouldn't exactly get along. Friedkin seems like... Well, I'm saying it's more of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde situation. We have one person who like, will never <laughs> explain anything. Yeah. You have the other person who's going to go way in depth on the commentary to tell mm-hmm. you what he was thinking. Um, I did rewatch it as well, the, the first one, and I wanted to ask you about something because we have talked about it, I believe, on this podcast before. Um, and you seem to think that Jason Miller, playing Damian Karras, is an attractive individual. Yeah, yeah, he's a handsome guy, yeah. I don't think he's like Clint Howard ugly, but I do not. I would not say attractive. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, the interesting thing about him is that he uh, he was a playwright. He wasn't like oh. traditionally an actor. I think he had done some acting for like for like stage and for plays and things like that. But he was primarily known as as a as a playwright, and he wrote a play about basketball that William Friedkin went and saw on a whim because he liked basketball. And he was like, oh, I love this thing. He kind of, like, got to know Jason Miller a little bit. And then when they were casting The Exorcist, Jason Miller read the book and contacted Freakin' personally and was like, hey, I'm that guy. Like, his life, like, the strained relationship with his mother, the crisis of faith, like, growing up and, like, getting into the Jesuit school and things like that. He's like, that's that's exactly my life. Like, I am this mm-hmm. guy. And they really didn't want to cast him because he wasn't a well-known name or anything, but they he managed or to... Or attractive. Right, but Freak... You know, I get he, it. No, he's, he's handsome. He's a good-looking guy. Um, but uh, when he's, like, running on the track and stuff, he looks he's looking great uh, in the first one. Um, <laughs> look, by part three, you might have an argument, but I think he's... Yeah. Well, you know, t- time, you know, takes a toll on us all. Yeah, he, and he had a really um... sad life post-Exorcist. Like, he... Uh, I believe it was alcohol. He was a like a severe alcoholic, and Freakin has a whole section of his book talking about how he felt guilty for honestly getting him involved in this and in, in the Hollywood lifestyle. Like he oh. he kind of thinks like you know if I hadn't hadn't made this movie, like who knows how his life may have gone. But um, but yeah, it's a, kind of a sad story for him. By the time he does three, according to Brad Dourif, apparently Dourif had a quote somewhere about how um he had brain rot or something at this point. And so him, him oh. there's a, there's a troubled production history with exorcist three. Uh, Blatty had a lot of conflict with Morgan Creek, the, um, the studio behind this. And they made him do a bunch of reshoots. Originally when they shot this, there was one actor playing the Gemini killer slash father Karras. And that was Brad Dourif. It was just Brad Dourif. There were no scenes at all of Jason Miller uh, Blighty says he was unavailable, but Duraf said at some point, no, he had brain rot and couldn't remember his lines. Um, however, when they had to do a bunch of reshoots for the ending, which we'll talk about later, I suppose, um, Jason Miller suddenly was available. But I think what they did is they figured out we don't really have to use his voice all that much. We can modulate it. We can put in Brad Duraf's right. voice. And so he really gives very few actual line readings i think in the final product like it's mostly brad Dourif talking as a gemini killer i this feels like one of those studio notes that actually that pays off the best. yeah I, I think it yeah it has so much more impact into it seeing father Karras, um, definitely and he's got he's got to look right maybe he's not attractive but he does have the perfect look for this character in this movie like he looks oh, so exactly. ha- so right. haggard and he, like yeah, 
no he looks like a walking there. corpse. I think he does yeah. a, a tremendous job in the movie, and I really love his acting mm-hmm. in the first one. Um, let's go over just a little bit more of this one, and we'll uh, dive into some other things. As you said, yes, Morgan Creek is the uh, production company of this movie. It is an hour and 50 minutes. Uh, taking a look at some of the cast, we have fucking amazing Oscar winner George C. Scott as Lieutenant Will Kinderman. Um, I don't think there is a more badass person we will ever talk about on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. A guy won an Oscar and said, fuck you, I don't want it. He's, I love George C. Scott. I think he's so He's so good. Great. I he's love a- him in this movie. He's maybe the one of the biggest hams of movie history, but like, you, but you love it. It's it's delicious ham. Yeah, it usually works out though. It, like that is what the character needs. I think in this one, um, Patton and um, uh, not censor. What's what's uh, hardcore? Yes, which I is love hardcore. Another yeah. freak is that freaking as well? No, that's Paul Schrader, the aforementioned Paul Schrader. That's oh, that's right. That's and, I knew uh, it was someone. The, and but Paul Schrader, he, he's a huge fan of The Exorcist, though, and like um, that was one of his like touchstone movies that like uh, he kind of was really inspired by. Uh, I think he's talked about how Makes like sense. almost everything he wants to do as an artist, like Friedkin did in The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, we have Ed Flanders as Father Dyer, Brad Dourif, as we've talked about, as the Gemini Killer, Jason Miller as Patient X. Also known as Father Karras. Uh Scott Wilson as Dr. Temple. He's yeah. popped up in a lot of things I've seen. Um, He's great. Herschel in The Walking Dead. Some name yeah. in The Walking Dead for um, a little while. He's in... I feel like we talked about him once before, maybe. Possibly. Because I remember talking about this before, maybe. too. But he plays one of the two killers in In Cold Blood, in the film version of that. Oh, and, oh in the original with... Um, with uh, Robert pa- Blake. Uh, what's... Robert Blake, yes. Yeah, so uh, he's the other killer, like, alongside Robert Blake, and he's fucking great. I think he might be the better performance in that movie. It's really tough to say, because Robert Blake is pretty good, but also, like, yeah. Robert Blake is pretty melodramatic in it, like, the way it's written and performed. Um, Scott Wilson, mm-hmm. to me, he feels he feels like more like a kind of a country bumpkin psychopath, which he's playing in that, which is a little okay, scarier, possibly. Yeah. Um, but great, great actor. I, need to see I that. love, I love him in this too. Like, yeah, I, there's so many little, little details about his performance that were standing out to me. The way he pinches cigarettes, like, holy shit! Oh yeah, yeah. it's always, it's always weird. Um, him practicing what he's gonna <laughs> say to Kenderman. Yeah, he's just like going over and over. But then he, as he's telling Kenderman, he keeps like he looks at his notes. That is such oh my god, including that detail. There's no reason yeah. for it, but it it adds so much texture to that scene. Yeah. It's stuff. it's again, it's characterization and it's like it's telling us about him. It's showing it to us, but it's telling us about how this character is. Um real quick tangent. Uh I don't know if you're still watching X-Files, but there's an episode <laughs> Slowly, that but yes. If you when you get to in the third season, we need to watch together. But there okay. is a a character uh, writing a book about one of the cases, and he's interviewing Scully, and it's Charles Nelson Riley. But he's basically playing a Truman Capote esque character. Oh boy! Okay, and it is fun. Not it is one of the best episodes of all time. Um, 
getting back to it, there is Kevin Corrigan as one scene as an altar boy. I just know his face from a lot of things. He pops up in, in so many uh, movies and TV shows. I just had to shout him out. Um, one of the cameos, I'll go ahead and, and say because it is There's a lot. barely a cameo. Uh, Larry King as himself in the in the restaurant. <laughs> and then we have Nicole Williamson. Nickel? Nickel. I'll say Nickel. Nickel Williamson as Father Morning. Um, we'll get to some of those other cameos later because they're all in a dream sequence. Yeah. Uh, but real quick, let's talk about something else other than horror. Greg, do you have any recommendations? Anything you've been watching, reading, listening to? I've uh, been watching Star Trek. Uh, that's that's this is what okay. sl- I slowed down my X Files watch, uh, which I am still going through very slowly. But I've always wanted New to generation. Uh, so I've always series. so here's the thing. I've always wanted Deep to Space Nine. I'm getting to okay. it. Uh, I've always wanted to uh, get into all of Star Trek. I wanted to see everything. Um, you know, because uh, I liked the 2009 movie a lot. That got me into watching the original series back in the day. So I've seen most of that. But it's been so long, I also wanted to refresh it. But I also want to kind of be in the current conversation. So what I'm doing is that I'm watching an episode of the original series, and then I am switching off and jumping forward to watch uh, Strange New Worlds, which is the okay. current series going on right now. They just started their second that season. That is a prequel to the to original. The, yes, it stars right? Captain yes. Pike, who is a, right. a, a key character. He's the... the Captain of the Enterprise right before Kirk takes over. Right, right. Yeah. And honestly, it's been working up like great. So so there's a lot there's two characters or uh Uhura and Spock are a part of the mm-hmm. show. They're they're cast as younger as their younger selves. The actress playing them do a really good job. But just thematically, switching off between like that is working out fantastically. Like it's it's similar eras of so the so like, you know, it's uh the sort of uh aesthetic of Stranger Worlds is obviously a lot more high tech than it was in the sixties, but they try to sixty-five sixties it a little bit, which is really okay. nice. Um I enjoy and then that. just the plot lines are like thematically relevant between each other. So it's like you watch an episode about Uhura um in Strange New Worlds and it's like she's a new recruit and she's got a background in music and languages and then I watched the original series, and in the original series episode, she, like, gives a whole, like, song performance. And I'm like, well, this is perfect. Like, this is, like, you could not have, like, planned that better, you know? Um, so I've been really enjoying that. So that that's that's kind of the big thing. Other than that, I watched a great kung fu movie, another Shaw Brothers movie called um, Chinatown Kid, which was fantastic. It's, like, uh, apparently a movie Chinatown that was a big... Chinatown Kid. Yeah, apparently it was a big influence on Jackie Chan and his kind of, like, comedic persona. Um, okay. the actor is Alexander Fu Sheng, I believe is his name. And, uh, it's that sort of, it's like an archetype in Chinese stories, I guess, but kind of like the sort of naive young kid who's good at Kung Fu, who's like there to support his family, but also will, you know, beat the shit out of you and like in a street fight for money and stuff like that. Um, hmm. like the kind of character that Jackie plays in like Rumble in the Bronx and police story and things like that. That's like an archetype. That this guy Alexander Fushang was a part of too. I really need to go back because I've never seen a lot of those early Jackie Chan movies. Oh, like, so uh, I feel like Rush Hour was my introduction. Rush Hour Two is my really. first one for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I highly recommend the Police Story movies. One, two. I've only seen one, two, and three, but all three are fucking fantastic. 
those are those are really good stuff. Yeah, I know one and two are Criterion, and I've I've yep. looked at that picking that one up, but I I need to do it. Um, I you know we're doing some back to back recording. I haven't really had a lot. Uh, I watched. We talked a little bit off uh, Mike about Spider Verse. It's really good, but you know everyone's talking about that. I yeah. did go see The Little Mermaid yesterday. And I tried my hardest to keep my eyes open, but uh, I was so sleepy throughout so much of it. It just looks uh, like sludge. It's basically, <laughs> yeah, it was it was not great. A uh, fucking flounder looked horrible. It was just too realistic of a fish. Uh, <laughs> I. Uh, love hated Aquafina as Scuttlebutt, and my recommendation is her rap song in the movie. Oh my god. She does the Scuttlebutt, which is uh, new lyrics by Lin-Manuel Miranda, and once mm-hmm. you you realize that, you're like, oh, of course it's Lin-Manuel. It's got that, it's got that, like, kind of poppy, he, uh, yeah. rap tone to it. He can't... Um, all it's of his cute. his hip hop. I think he's a really good lyricist, um, mm-hmm. but so many of his songs just have the same sort of rhythm to them that I really don't that that like. is exactly what it is. Yeah, yes. yeah. I, I there's I, I I've liked songs of his. Obviously, like I I never I've only listened to Hamilton and I never I never watched a, a recording it's of pretty it or good. anything. But um, and I good. I like some of the songs, but I I also have a really hard time telling a lot of them apart. Just based like on how they sound, so you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, you know, Javier Bardem was, you know, phoning it in. Um, there's like a couple shots where he like comes above the water a little bit, and it's yeah. the worst beard and hair <laughs> that you've ever seen. And I feel like a lot of the times that I was awake, I was just watching the hair underwater and just seeing, you know, yeah, all the technical stuff. It was bizarrely. I, weird theater experience where there was like a giant row of a family and there was a woman who was planning on using her phone the whole time i assume until i had to go like excuse me can you please turn that off and they looked back like they were shocked shocked i tell you that someone would say hey maybe it's a generational thing that here yeah i don't know but i feel like Almost all of my visits to the movies these days, you're gonna see at least at least one cell phone be pulled out repeatedly during the film. Like it happens to me so much right. now. I feel like there was a period of my life where it, it kind of stopped happening, where people were getting the message. You know, and when I worked in the theater, obviously there were plenty of times where someone would come out and complain about people on their phones. But like me personally, I feel like I'm seeing it so much now. Like like people just have stopped giving a shit about blowing their phones out in theaters just completely. <laughs> it's. People are the worst. I remember one, I mean, this is like over a decade ago, I feel like. They pulled it out and they were just swiping on their home screens. Yeah. Like, because they were just bored. They yeah. weren't like, oh, I'm going to look at something. I'm just going to like swipe back forth. Oh. Oh. Yeah. And they're like, <laughs> you'd say something to them. They're like, oh, I was doing it mindlessly. You're like, great. Great. Um, let's talk about this movie. I also wanted to say that I have the book Legion. Oh, I'll show you this little copy ooh, of it. Nice. It's a it's a pretty nice little paperback, and it has one of those. Um, it's got a little hole. Oh, whoa! In the, in yeah. the cover. So I then it's those. a like a 
uh, a priest with red eyes and a family. I don't know. It's kind of weird, but what the hell? It's fun. Like I love this cover. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I've read like the 25 pages basically like the first chapter yeah i tried to see it is is a very interesting comparison because i'm already like oh i they talk about macbeth in the movie uh a lot of one line kinderman kinderman feels or a lot of people think that kinderman is senile and losing it and it's him knowing that people feel that way because he says weird things throughout the movie interesting um, I tried to find an audiobook of it to see if that was available somewhere, but I didn't. I did. I listened to the Exorcist audiobook read by William Peter Blatty. He has an incredible oh, voice. Okay. He has an amazing voice. So I highly recommend listening to the audiobook if you're able to, because uh, he really brings it to life. It, it's incredible. Um, but yeah, he, I did read the book years ago and really enjoyed book. it. Yeah, awesome book. I mean, a, a wonderful companion to the movie. They're they're extremely similar. Like, Friedkin really pushed for uh, Blighty to not change anything. And there's some there's minor changes. Actually, some dialogue from The Exorcist that didn't get filmed for that movie made its way into this one. Like, the carp speech. That's all in The, Exorcist, the original oh. Exorcist book. Um, so, yeah, he actually had... One the of ad- the best. Amazing stuff, yeah. He had the idea for this movie immediately after the original movie came out. He kind of conceived of a sequel they could do. He tried to get William Friedkin on board, but Friedkin was not interested in revisiting Exorcist so soon. Um, and then eventually didn't want to do it at all. Uh, and then the studio also pushed for uh, a sequel involving Reagan because Linda Blair was such mm-hmm. a, a breakout star. They're like, no, we want we want to follow what she, whatever she did. And it turns out what she did is, like, I guess, communicate with a bunch of locusts in Africa and put on a hypnosis machine. Uh- Dark like, Vader and, was there, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, you've have you seen Exorcist two? It's been so long. Like I, I really don't remember a lot besides like, you know, yeah, Vader being there. Like he's the, he's the big African. Yes. Like yeah, Kukomo. Yeah. Um, uh, antagonist, I guess. Yeah. No, he. I mean, not real. No, he's actually one of the good guys in it. He's kind of like okay. The, See, he's a little how bit much like I the, remember of it. Yeah, he's a little bit like the Father Marin role, kind of like the kind of like okay elder statesman that comes in to assist sort of thing. But um, I honestly can't exactly tell you what he does aside. He says the phrase "Pazuzu brushed you with his wings," and the entire rest mm-hmm. of the movie they say that phrase like thirty plus times. Um, it's a it's a bad movie. I wish I liked it more. It's directed by John Borman, who I think is a great director. Um, and a lot of his weirdness comes out in that movie, but it's just it's it's fucking boring. It's so boring. Richard Burton is like Sometimes not good in that. I like you get those good directors, but the story is just so bad that there's really no improvement. Yeah, of something that's so rushed. Like, oh, we need something that connects, like, whatever. Yeah, also uh, supposedly... Instead of, like, taking some time and growing these characters that we, like, came to know. Especially, I love it, that is, you know, like a side character. In the Exorcist movie, Kinderman is barely in it. He yeah. is just, like, kind of set dressing. And I don't... Here's my take about the... about the, You had your Jason Miller's ugly take. My, my take is that Kinderman in the original is the weakest part of the movie. I don't think he's bad. I think that Lee J. Cobb is pretty good. Like he's a, obviously a good actor and he has good scenes. That in was it. what like, I was looking up for his name. Like when yeah. he like when he's telling um Chris, when he's telling her 
he's not exactly saying it, but he's essentially saying like, hey, I know your daughter killed the director, you know, I killed Burke. Mm -hmm. He's basically saying that, but he's not saying it, you know. And William Freakin said that's his favorite scene in the original because uh, uh, Cobb is so good and um, uh, Edwin Burson is like, you know, immaculate in that moment. Uh, I think he's got good scenes, but I think he's the weakest character in that because he's kind of just like this sort of friendly old man. There's the implication he knows what's going on, of course, but like... But he's kind of a step behind everything. Yes. Like he knows everything, but after it's happened. Right. And and the stakes are supposed to be that, you know, obviously they're going to discover that she killed somebody and she's going to get committed, right? Taken away from Chris. But something about Cobb is so friendly that the stakes don't exactly read from me. Like, the stakes to me are not, oh, Cobb's going to commit her. The stakes are her internal, like, her eternal soul is in trouble. Like, she's fucking possessed by a demon. So then, like, having the... It's a step down in terms of stakes whenever they, like, cut to Kinderman getting closer to invest, and the investigation, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and question, did you watch the original cut, or the was it the director's cut? I did the director's, which is longer and has more okay. of him, and it ends with him and Dyer. Right. Yeah, which is and a nice segue to this movie. Yeah. What I was trying to remember, because we watched it on HBO, and it is the original cut, theatrical, I'm sure, and d- the movie, the director's cut, ends more with, like, him and Dyer walking they're, off. They're Almost going like to the a, movies. Almost like a Casablanca. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it is the Casablanca type of ending. Like, hey, we're going to be friends. Right. Um, which, yeah, like, goes right into this one. Um, I will say one of my favorite shots is very early on. It is one of the most simple uh, special effects you can do is a shot of the stairs from The Exorcist, which I've been to because I did oh, some nice. schooling in Northern Virginia. So I've been to Georgetown. Those stairs are there. That's They're awesome. very steep. Um, but just a, a shot at night of those stairs and uh, a smoke machine. You just play a smoke machine backwards. Right, exactly. smoke coming into a certain point. It is with the music... It is so unsettling. It's just, it's beautiful. So um, so I feel like we're set up very well to yeah. begin this movie. I, I gotta say, too, there are two editions of this movie. There's an original, and then there's a, like an assembled director's cut um, for okay. Exorcist 3. And I, I watched both. I managed to find a site that had the, the director's cut on it, which came out in like 2017, the year before Blighty died. Um, they managed to find a bunch of VHS sources of all this cut footage that what they thought was missing, and they essentially assembled what they what is a, a movie that's close to his original script and to what mm-hmm. what the original cut of the movie that they screened for test audiences, but then they made them go back and reshoot the ending and things like that and add Father Morning and all. Um, I'll get to how I feel about the two editions as we go through. Um. But yeah, it was fascinating to, to be able to watch two different versions of that too. The director's cut, ten minutes shorter. One of the few times where hmm. the director's one is actually shorter than the theatrical. Well, just like a John Cassavetes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so we cut to basically fifteen years after the events of the original one, which is probably why I was thinking seventy-five. Right. Um uh, it seems Kinderman has become a lieutenant. Was he a lieutenant or just a detective in the first one? You would I, think there would be some, like, progression of a promotion or whatever. Don't um, remember. <laughs> um, and then Father Dyer is doing his usual thing. They are getting together 
after a, it seems that they do it every year on the anniversary of the ending of the original movie right where father uh Karis dies i love that each of them are telling themselves that they're helping out the other one yeah that's great that it's, it, is, it's... it is a um uh you know they're relying on each other it's almost like um enabling that mm-hmm. type of relationship yeah uh yeah it's great I know we're already we're already talking a lot. So we're being, uh, I mean, we, me, uh, are is being very talkative already. But there's just a lot of great things that happen even in this first couple of minutes. You have like the unseen force like blowing into the church right in the beginning, yeah. and the Jesus statues. Up. Yeah, dude, it's so fucking silly. That is like it's when fun. I when I first saw this, that kind of like made me laugh, but also it's just like, oh no, this is gonna get ridiculous. And it is a ridiculous movie in a way, but honestly, like that's kind of maybe the most r- ridiculous part. Uh, mm-hmm. You get that, and then the great—I love this. This is such awesome, like uh, setting of the atmosphere. But the POV shot going down the street, uh, past the church, and you see one of the eventual victims, the young, the young kid. Um, but then you get a voiceover from Jason Miller. This is like, you know, I often dream of a red rose and falling down a long flight of steps. In the director's cut, that is Brad Dura's voice because Miller was not a part of the movie. Mm. Um, I highly prefer Jason Miller's voiceover. I love Brad Dura's voice, obviously. But for this director's cut, they didn't do any kind of um, voice modification on him, which I think they meant to. Uh, And so for the most of the movie, you don't get the great voice that... uh, Gemini Killer speaks in for the most part. Yeah, I feel that, yeah, throughout all that you see of the, like, interrogation interview, he has that modulation. Which is awesome. I don't feel like there's ever a time that you don't have it. Right, it's it's so chilling. It's so great. Um, Yeah, we'll get, like, there's the first murder of uh, Thomas Kentry, who was 12, crucified on Owen Roars. R- yeah. rowing oars <laughs> oaring rowing oars <laughs> oaring roars yeah um he's also beheaded and there's a jesus statue replacing it that's mm-hmm. done up in a minstrel show and i'm like yeah Yeesh. um they get into a lot of racial stuff there's that uh scene where kinderman is in the police station talking about how um one of the cops like is a racist gonna... yeah Right, yeah, so it's something about rabies and rabbis, and um, ends the conversation with, like, go talk about WAPs, or something yeah. like that, and you're like, um... He's all over the place, <laughs> it's crazy. That's it, I was gonna say, but like, it's uh... Great. He's also talking about Macbeth, Yeah, and, like, you know, the moral, like, I think that's one of the great things, it's, like, the moral... Degradation you know, or something, of, right. Right, right, of, of society. Uh, he, so... The other thing, one thing I want to mention, just a great quote when because Father Dyer is talking to like it's like an altar boy or something or like another uh, like priest in training, and he's talking about like this essay he wrote and how it's like oh you should change your name to like this then it's like some Arab name he gives. Um, then he's quoting it's like God is like a power mower. <laughs> it's like well, I guess something right. the kid wrote. Yeah. Uh, he has he has an even better one when he's having breakfast or something with his superior, maybe or whatever. Yeah. And he's like, "What did you tell this guy?" He's like one of our top benefactors. I said, "Jesus love you." Everyone else thinks you're an asshole. Mm-hmm. I'm also gonna gonna exclusively start telling people this afternoon. I'm at the flicks. 
is how he says he's going to mm-hmm. the movies. I fucking, oh mm-hmm. God, I loved it. Ed Flanders is great in this. He's so good. I love the, uh, you know, uh, seeing It's a Wonderful Life. I've seen it 37 times. Yeah. Oh, that's commendable. <laughs> you have a favorite picture? The fly. Yeah. And I guess it's the question, is does he mean the original or the Cronenberg? Uh, apparently that actor is in the fly part two, apparently is in the fly two. So Okay. Yeah. I don't know what that means. Um Uh We're already taking a long time, but I just have to stop and say I love George C. Scott walking into the theater and just flashing the badge and Dude, saying official business. Well, okay, so I think it's so great. So does he, he drives up because he's late. He drives up with the sirens on, <laughs> like, and he then has gets someone drop yeah. him off, right? Yes, and then gets out of it, flashes his badge, his police business. The way this theater is shot is so great. You could tell that like this mm-hmm. is probably a theater that Blatty loves. There's just something about like the way they capture it is that that is really cool. Uh, yeah, he you know stops to buy lemon heads even though they're late. Uh, I I love lemon drops. I, could have I love that drops, speech yeah. too. Of mm-hmm. like, yeah, like you know, I spent a year hearing children's confessions. They had that on their breath and pot and something like it's addictive. Yeah, the the mixture of the two. Yeah. Uh. So Ugh. yeah, I, I I could have watched an entire movie of just these two old guys going to the movies together. Like, it was just perfect. It's it's the greatest vibe. And the like. We already mentioned it, but the long shot of like just a just a shot of George C. Scott talking about why he doesn't want to go home. And yeah, that his mother-in-law brought a carp. It's a tasty fish. I have no problem with it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> but that it's swimming in his bathtub. It's filled because with, of impurities. Filled with impurities. He buys it live, and for yeah. three days, it's been swimming up and down in my bathtub. And he's like, "I you notice you're standing very close, Father. I haven't had a bath for three days." Like, uh, and talking about how empty the movie is in general, this shot is so close on their two faces. Yeah. Like, they're filling up the entire screen, essentially. So you really get the intimacy between them, which I, I, I think is, is awesome. Uh, and I, Dyer's I, trying not to laugh yes, the whole time. Yes, exactly. That's what's great about it, too. Yeah. Uh, um, so I right also here, love, they, well, this is where they, they go, go to, to dinner. The, the diner. Yeah. Right. Um, we see Larry King real quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, this this is a lot of great conversation as well. So we okay, learn that in the director's cut, there's a little more of it. It starts with them talking about oh, okay. "It's a Wonderful Life," and Kinderman is going on about Jimmy Stewart's performance, and he's like, "Ah, nobody could have played that like Jimmy Stewart." And he says something about like the warmness of it, or like he he's talking about how much he likes it. I forget exactly what his comment is. But uh, Father Dyer laughs and goes, "But you said the same thing about Eraserhead." And he's just kind of like, you like, kind of like laugh about it. And then, so all the director's cut footage is like a shitty VHS quality too. So it's really easy to tell. Okay. Obviously like where it comes in and it's not audio mix. It's not color corrected. It's just like really super grainy VHS footage. So it does take you out of it anytime it pops up, but you get fun extra stuff like that. And there's a couple other just little lines that they cut out of this conversation um, here and there. That was the most notable for sure though. I do like that they're so distracted. I think with their own problems that they're just not eating the food. Yeah. You know, Kinderman is obviously like, he just saw a young boy that we're learning that he knew. Yeah. From like a police, like child kind of thing. Um, and, you know, they're just not eating. It's it's great. The 
it pretty much goes to another person dying, a priest in a confession. And I love that it is this little old lady's voice yeah. talking about, like, killing people. But it does vaguely just... sound like Pazuzu from the original because, it, again, it's right. modified. There is modulation and it's somewhat, there, right? It, it's arguably asexual, but it's also an old woman's voice, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, great shot of just a woman screaming, and then it cuts to the blood, like, pouring from the confession booth. We learn that the, the priest has died, has also had his head removed. Yeah. Um, and this is where we start seeing the right index finger being removed and then we don't see it here but we're we're told or we're led to assume that there is a uh the sign of the gemini carved yeah. into their left palm i mean very obviously based off of uh zodiac killer you know the gemini yes. killer like i think that was just a mook i mean dirty harry does the same thing with the scorpio killer you scorpio, know scorpio right. as opposed to just yeah. like generally the zodiac you just pick one sign and like you know mm-hmm. that's your killer uh i yeah. it, we all, i really like his team like the forensics team he works with uh they really got interesting the looks one guy that's always wearing sunglasses the guy with the sunglasses and then you get the guy with the ponytail yeah and then the uh the sergeant who like is in the confessional with him i, I like that little kind of mm-hmm. jump scare where he like suddenly pulls back the thing and he just like starts reading facts to him you know the priest is played by harry carey jr also oh okay yeah. huh and this is where we're learning more about like kind of the killing is that they are being paralyzed by this like electroshock treatment drug which is great one of the things we haven't even really talked about is Obviously, since our main character is a detective, this is a detective story. We are, like, learning clues throughout. And on a rewatch, you see you see how all the little pieces are fitting together. Like, you know, you'll notice, like, oh, there's an old woman. Oh, that's why that is. Like, we mm-hmm. see someone with the nurse. Like, all these pieces make more sense after you realize the whole plot of it. But they are being injected with... I can't remember the name of the drug, but it is electroshock yeah, treatment drug. Um, it they they talk about it later on. It's like if you give too little, it doesn't work, but if you give too much, it kills them instantly. So you have to have this like precise amount that paralyzes them. Yes, um, but they still feel everything as they're you know being worked on, and that especially for uh, Thomas Kintry that. Uh, <laughs> He suffocated because his lungs just slowly stopped working. Right. They became paralyzed. Uh, absolutely chilling. Yeah, To definitely. think about. Uh, that combined with the conversation that they have at the diner, which is a lot... He, that's where he tells Dyer about what happened to, to um, Kentry. And uh, that combined with his, his conversation about Macbeth, too, about de- the degradation mm-hmm. of morals and then just how miserable he is in the job when he's seeing things like that happen, like there really is like a forlorn, miserable tone to this sometimes about like, just like the, the cruelty of the, of the real world, uh, that I really like. Yeah. Um, I, I think just skipping ahead a little bit, this movie does not stick its landing in either version of this movie. I think the ending is a problem both times and this and the director's cut or director's cut and the theatrical, but I, I love all of this setup. This setup is so, yes, ripe for like an exploration of good and evil in the world and like faith it's barely touched upon but kinderman is jewish 
there's like one line that talks about this. Um, so he's not a believer in these things. And, you know, we don't we don't exactly get what his interpretation of the original events of the, of the first movie are, but he never saw possess Reagan in the original. So as far as he knows, this right. is still just like unexplainable, ill-defined things. He's friends with these priests, but it's more just a friendship. It's not like, a, hey, I believe you guys and you're my priest sort of thing. You know, it's just mm-hmm. that they're they're pals. Uh, there is a little bit in the book that I read where he uh, has a breakfast of bagels and locks, and I was like, I wonder if he's Jewish. Yeah. So that makes sense. I think in the director's cut, there's, they add, there's one line where he mentions being Jewish, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also learn that all the prints don't match on these two murders, and he's like, no, they're going to match, and they don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a scene of Dyer has had some kind of medical issue. He's in the hospital now, reading, like, women's weekly dress or something I, fashion, I love it yeah this, I, this their, their back and forth dialogue is so beautiful and yeah. perfect and it's like two friends who know each other and they slog on each other you know mm-hmm. um brings them a big penguin which is real cute this is one of my I favorite george e. scott moments um when the nurse like hears them arguing because the exchange is great. He's saying, oh, my yeah. brother had the same symptoms. He's like, your brother died at 30. And he's like, yeah, but he was killed in Vietnam. And he's like, well, there could have been some connection. And he's like, what are you talking about? Uh, so the nurse hears them yelling, and she comes in, and he's like, are you fine, guys? And he gives the incredible delivery. <laughs> he whips his head around and goes, we're fine! And just, like, screams it at the top of his lungs. It's like, mm. oh, God, I, I can't get enough of that. But the nurse enters to, like, take a blood sample. And then Dyer's just like, oh, you know, don't worry about it. Go in. It's the wrong room. And she's like, he's like, go in peace. May the shorts be with you. Uh, yeah. Give a little space ball shout out. Uh, Scott at some point is talking about like he should go be with missionaries in India. Mm-hmm. It's kind of random, but I love that at the end when he's leaving, he just says, Mother India is calling you, father. Yeah. Uh, the director's <laughs> cut has a small moment where another nurse enters and says she's going to draw blood. And uh, Dyer's like, oh, but the nurse already drew blood 20 minutes ago. See, I got the hole right here. And then the nurse runs out screaming like, who stuck this guy? But I like that as a eventual foreshadowing of what happens to Dyer. Um, yes, yes. Which we will get to uh, real briefly because it almost happens automatically. Yeah. But the Kinderman does go home and has a wonderful dream sequence. Great stuff. Yeah. Bizarre. Yeah. Uh, I watched this with Brittany, and, like, when this comes up, she's like, oh, this is weird. Obviously, you like this stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she it's got your great, man. But you have, you know, like, random uh, people in, you know, the white robes, angel wings. This is where we get a bunch of the cameos with Fabio as an yep. angel. Quite mm-hmm. wonderful. Um, Patrick Ewing, who is a basketball player yes i guess yeah free and i read on here but i i was watching both times i did not see it apparently samuel l jackson yeah i caught him i caught him the second time yeah Yeah, he's he's off to one side and uh he's not focused on at all but he's like playing like a blind man uh he's he's very thin he's really really thin so it isn't like not that he ever gains a lot of weight or anything but it doesn't exactly it looks like him in uh goodfellas you remember him in Goodfellas? Okay. Like how skinny he is I there. was thinking, right, maybe True Romance. Wasn't he, he was having uh, drug problems in the yeah, he was a, early 90s, right? He was a, yeah, he was so, a crack addict, I believe, yeah. Right, so this mm-hmm. is 
makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, just a really interesting idea of like the way station to heaven is kind of like a train. It's it's simultaneously place. like comedic though. Like it's kind of silly. Like fucking yes. Fabio is here, but there is well, an, it's a it is a dream. Yeah, but there is an it's air. Weird. There's a of, band playing. Well, okay, so the director's cut throws shade on whether or throws some doubt on whether or not this might be a dream or if this is actually something real. But um, uh, there's just something up in the air though that is very creepy and scary about this too. Something about the way the angels look like hovering over people, and then just like when you get into the, if you think about it, it's like he's seeing children running around, and it's like oh, these are all dead children, mm-hmm. and it's just like the darkness mm-hmm. of that really like set in the second time I saw this, yeah. You see, when you see Thomas Kintry there, I love that he's got the police boys club shirt right. on. Right, and then all but of the victims like have that, the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that almost Frankenstein type of neck. Like staples around her neck, been, yeah. Right, right. Um, a lot of great zooms. That's one of the things I noticed about in The First Exorcist is freaking knows when to zoom. There are yeah. so many great shots where it's, even even cutting to a different shot and we're still zooming in and then at the end of the conversation they just start zooming out and it's bo- and it keeps cutting and they're all zooming out it's just it's a wonderful vision um but this is when he wakes up he gets the call father dyer has been killed um he has been drained of all of his blood his head has been cut off and there has been a message left above the bed it's a wonderful life Mm-hmm. with two l's yeah we, t- um, we talked about the cinematography of right yes yeah we already talked about the the pov entrance the camera in the corner a fucking amazing scene it is one of those things where not a lot i guess there is information being given to us and maybe that's why it's so static so that we're like invested in this but it is just a, a very interesting uh concept for the scene in general yeah yeah one of the best scenes of the film for sure maybe my favorite scene i don't know it's 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 tough to say uh just it could not have been better i did the the detail that said it to me the second time was literally just the rainstorm starting right as he notices the blood um just such a great cinematic touch to have and then you have the rainstorm going on the entire rest of the time he's at the hospital uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, just the, that little detail, just like ugh, incredible. And we learned to find out that there was a old woman passed out in front of his uh, hospital bed, which is what leads him to like the neurology department. This is where we meet Doctor Temple. Uh, there's mm-hmm. also the flasher in the wheelchair, which I just really love. Very funny stuff. The nurse's yeah. reaction, very funny. Speaking of the uh, nurse, we talked about Temple smoking weird. Yeah, the nurse, the, the one he interviews to get this information, Nurse Allerton, played by Nancy Fish, she's really good uh, playing this sort of, like, kind of burnt out, worn down, like, you know, kind of like... She's old... the stern one that wraps yes. his hand up, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. She's great. Mm-hmm. She's so good. Because, we'll get to that scene in a minute, but it's like after he struck Patient X, Gemini Killer... And then it's her, like, saying, you broke his goddamn nose. And then we cut to her wrapping his hand up and being, like, not angry or upset. And she even says in that scene, like, I'm a bitch. She realizes (laughs) that. (laughs) It's very good. So good. Um, That's when he talks to uh, Miss Clelia? Clelia? Some, like, old Italian 
type of woman who is waiting for the radio repairman. And George C. Scott says, oh, that's me. And she goes, well, here, dead people are talking to my radio and holds up nothing. And he goes, okay, well, let me look at it. She goes, oh, well, that's how I know you're not the radio repairman. This is a telephone. Yeah. <laughs> just that weird humor in this she, movie is She's really so good. Great. And it's, it's kind of funny, this whole stuff, because George C. Scott is looking pretty dang old in this. But then you see, like, these actors, and you're like, oh, no, he's, like, still got some energy and, and life in him. Yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, he's a big boy in this yeah. movie, but oh, it's, yeah. he carries it so well. That That is one of the things I keep coming back to. Um, he sees the disturbed ward. He starts looking in. There's the, the two-door system. He's no way that he could get out. But as he's there, he hears Bill and starts looking into that one room. Um, he gets called to talk to... Uh, I'm guessing it's, like, the hospital administration people, because he wants to, like, investigate, uh, you know, fingerprint, and very upset. That's where we get the very long, extended explanation about the Gemini killer, and how they misfed all the information into the press, the wrong hand, all that kind of thing. This is... we. Kind of get another, maybe a cameo. It's a little, he's got a lot of lines, but we have Ken Lerner as uh, the head of the hospital, Dr. Friedman. Um, oh, okay. Who, I know I've seen his face in things. Yeah, he's in like the running man. He, there's, he's an episode of Scrubs, I really remember, but I just okay. found out looking into him because I, I think he's he's really good in this, uh, but he's Michael Lerner's brother. Michael Lerner, like, you know, from Barton Fink and the 98 Godzilla right. and all that. Yeah, this is his brother. Right, right, right. Okay. I can see the similarity okay. now. Yeah. Yeah, as soon as you mentioned that, I like, it flashes in my head. That makes yeah. makes a lot of sense. Um, you talked about one of your favorite George C. Scott yelling moments. I think this is my favorite, where he's he's talking and people start, you know, kind of, the administration starts talking over him. He goes, shut your mouth! Yes. Oh, so good. And then the fact that he, well, he yells and then he starts crying immediately afterwards just because, like, the emotions yeah. coming out. He can't stop him. Yeah, one of his best acting uh, moments there for sure. I, I do think uh, he, this is, he's going over all the different, you know, facets of the Gemini murders and he mentions that all the victims have K names. And that to me feels like, I don't know, a writer's idea of, like, a serial killer tick. It's like, is he really, like, really. Because then later, Gemini Killer mentions how the killings are random. He likes to kill at random. But it's like, how is it random if you're only selecting K names? That's not random. Um, well, it is. I that is more random than specific, like, revenge. Because that's kind of yeah. what we start figuring out, is that these are revenge killings for Pazuzu being exercised from But they also Reagan. all happen to have certain, K names. It just, it's, yeah, it's certain just, <laughs> parties... Yeah. I, I love the way that he Dorf talks about it. And it's like certain parties were unpleased. I can't do the voice modulation. Certain parties yeah. were unpleased. <laughs> um, but I don't know. It is. It feels like a touch too much for all this stuff. You know, mm -hmm. like that. Oh, they also all have to have K names, and that's supposed to key us in later. It also took me way too long to just realize that Kinderman also fits that that's mold. What, yeah, you know, that they, is, they, that they never say that is. out loud, but yeah. That's why Julie is is uh, targeted, it, right? Um, well, they get into this is like, well, why does that doesn't make sense? It's Joseph Dyer, and Kinderman says, well, his middle name was Kevin, so <clears> I guess <throat> we're just fine with middle names now. 
Yeah. And you just get a, a you just get an insert of the Gemini killer going Kevin too, <laughs> like for some reason. There's a lot of interesting editing in this that Yeah, great I, editing. I do like, but sometimes it's like, okay, this is just weird. For the sake of weird. Maybe Brittany was right. This is why I like it. Yeah. Um there's a big scene with the 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 trimmers in the coroner's office. We learn about them. We see that there's a new shipping label on it, so obviously the old ones are the murder weapons. Right. Uh, he talks to a priest about the first Exorcist movie. We kind of get more this scene, information about that. This scene is also fucking excellent. Uh, it's so many good little details in this. I like the performance of the priest and um, him talking about like how he's like, I don't care. It's like, I don't care if this, if this is you know about exorcisms. Like I got enough shit going on, just like running a parish basically. And mm-hmm. there's the great moment where just, there's just, like, an interesting atmosphere that suddenly creeps into the room. The clock stops, which is something that happens in the very beginning of The Exorcist, when Father right. Marin notices it in Iraq. Um, the clock stops. There's a door that kind of just, like, is pushed slightly open at it by nothing. You're getting some kind of demonic noises on the soundtrack a little bit. You get that shot of the paper in the thing just kind of, like, blowing up, you oh, know? up in the air. Yeah, yes. that's great. So the, the priest... Zero reaction to any of this. He just goes silent and kind of just like is sitting there like not really looking at anything, which is a really creepy reaction for him to have. Kinderman gets up to investigate this, and this is where the fucking Joker just shows up as a statue holding a knife. Like, it's like a statue of a saint or something. I guess that changes into some like demonic form, but it's the Joker. Mm. It's the same sort of smile and like the eyes and everything. It looks like the animated, um, you know, like the killing joke uh cover or something like that <laughs> right yeah. right but i really like that there's a really good shot of the hallway too and it's all dark and like just really ominous uh and then a little jump scare with like the assistant coming in with the speech for the for the priest mm-hmm. we get uh a great 90s computer for mm-hmm. fingerprints we find out that it was the old lady that there was a smudge on one of the i guess we did we say with dyer all of his blood was yeah extracted. You, yeah you mentioned yeah But I don't think we mentioned they're in the little pea cups right beside the bed. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Not a smudge, not a drop anywhere besides the wall. Just so unsettling, really, like thinking about the process of of doing these killings. Um, It turns out that the fingerprints belong to the old woman, Miss Celia, whatever. Um, We talked about Temple rehearsing his speech to tell Scott about the the killer. Yeah. Love, 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 love that he just puts the note in the desk and yes. like references it. Uh, just he a also, quick shot. So when, good. when he's when he's lighting one cigarette with the other, just like he looks, yes. he's doing it so meticulously. Uh, introducing that scene, and this is something that that Blighty does quite a bit. Whenever he we enter a new space, he likes to cut around to objects in the room to like give you a sense of mm. what the environment is like. And with and we see Doctor really, Temple has a picture of himself. Yes. It really stands out in, in Temple's office because there's so much weird shit on the walls. There's like occult drawings and like photographs and things like that. A nude woman, a nude woman with like yeah. her breasts out, but then like her crotch is covered by another picture of something else. Like, it's like yeah, a collage almost around yeah. the boobs. Uh, and then the huge stacks of newspapers, which I and then George C. Scott has a comment on it, of course. You know, uh, there's a paper drive going on, and yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. 
But yeah, I love this scene. Just the little quick insert shot, like he leans over and glances down, and then the insert shot of the note inside the desk is so fucking good. It's um, great. It's perfect. Yeah, it's, it's I, one of those like amazing movie moments. Yeah, and essentially he's telling him like, "Hey, f- we have this guy in the thing that in in our uh, psych ward that's claiming he's the Gemini killer. The Gemini killer. He's been right. here fifteen years. Blah blah blah. And I, this is where Scott talks about Karis and says that. Like, he loved him and that he was his best friend. Which is not true, right? That doesn't happen in the the original. They're meeting for the first time. I don't remember if the novel was different in any way. Yeah, I don't remember either. Like, if they actually do go to movies. It it would make much more sense if he's saying that about Father Dyer, right? Yes. Like, because we've known each other for 15 years. We've still been in contact. But, like, Father cares. (laughs) You barely met him once? Twice, maybe? I, th- I think in the book, if I'm remembering correctly, maybe they do go to the movies a couple times. I think they do in, in the book, right? Yeah. But, um, so, I mean, this is where we start getting a lot of, uh, you know, kind of the rest of the movie is this in- interview interrogation with uh, Brad Dorif. Well, it's Jason Miller, and then it cuts to Brad Dorif. Which is a great we device. stay with Brad yeah. Dorif a lot of the time. Right. It is, you know, because it shows you... I guess you do get it in the first one with the possession. Reagan starts looking different. She looks like a corpse. Uh, but to have it like a completely different looking person. is And the fact that it is Brad Dorif. I mean, and it works thematically so with, with Kinderman's character as he's coming to believe more and more. Because he's still skeptical upon first meeting him, of course. Like, it starts out looking like Karis. Because that's literally whose body it is. It's literally Karis's mm-hmm. body. Um but then as he starts to believe more and more that this is actually the Gemini killer, it makes sense to me that his appearance would kind of change to um, to Kinderman. That would be a different person, you know? Um, it just I, I really like the way that's handled. And then, uh, so this is all reshoots. Uh, everything with right. the Gemini killer was reshot to include Jason Miller. Um, they had to redo a lot of Dura's stuff, too. And this is exactly, this is where the director's cut really suffers, because... All of this stuff, all of it is in that VHS quality. There's no distortion on Brad Dourif's voice. And so many of the camera, great camera angles are changed. There's the incredible mm. moment when it first switches from uh, Miller to Dourif. And it's that great shot on his eyes as he's freaking out and screaming and it pulls back. It's not It's not that at all in the director's cut. It's literally just a profile shot, and he's just like, no, uh, I am not. And it's like, he's not even yelling. It's like, oh, God, this disappointing. is... disappointing. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I, I think the reshoots... And obviously, it fucked with Blatty, and he talked about how it, it did kind of turn it into a movie that he wasn't exactly intending for it to be. But I think that he was able to then be a lot more playful and showy when he did the reshoots. I think going back to it, I think he decided to kind of, like, liven things up. And it, it paid off in a lot of respects. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. Like when you you do something, you're like, oh, the next time I do this, I can do it much better. And yeah, like, having that that opportunity. Um, Dorif starts talking about how he would have killed Dyer. Um, he has he has a great line talking about how you know the brain is still functioning twenty seconds after decapitation. So I like to show them their body. Something I throw in free of charge. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, yeah. And, you know, starts talking about the way he killed Dyer. And this is when Kinderman hits him. 
and I I love Dorif's reaction to it. Oh, a foo booze from the gallery, I see. Yes. Uh God, it's so good. Uh his physicality is amazing, his expressions, mm-hmm. um, the little like flavor he throws on certain lines of just like, I like Titus Androdicus the best. It's sweet. And just like Oh god, it, it's delicious. With the modulation, it, yeah. it's it's so great. The director's um, cut gives. Is... I was gonna say because it, 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 this is. I mean, this is the most I'll talk about it because this is the biggest difference is this scene and then the ending. But there's so many more lines he has in the director's cut, um, and a lot more to this conversation. So like, it starts out and you know he has that one kind of like bestial scream he does in the middle of the conversation. In the theatrical. I'm getting pretty good at that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. In director's cut, he's impersonating all sorts of different things. Like he's doing horse noises, and then he mentions at okay. some point, he says, I was at the station, referring to the dream world, of course, right? Oh. He says he's like he, he's like, there I was at the station, ready to depart or something like that. And then he does train noises. Like he does like a train whistle, and like it's like it's literally just audio <laughs> of a train plays. And so it's like, okay, I can see them cutting that because that's pretty goofy. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot more to it. He also said, there's a great line where Kinderman's getting upset and he goes, don't shout, please. There are sick people in here. Observe the rules or have you ejected? Like, and in Brad Dourif's kind of like sassy voice, it's really funny. Yeah. Um, but there's no way around it that the theatrical's better, like in this sense. Yeah. And it seems like his whole goal is to have the paper say that the Gemini killer is still alive. Like that's, that seems to be everything that he wants. Right. From Kinderman is tell it. Um, let's talk. Uh, we'll go through the rest of it pretty quickly afterwards. But let's talk about maybe one of the greatest scenes and shots of all time yeah. of the hospital at night. It it is. It's not. I don't want to say it's static because it does move a little bit. It is Slightly. jostled occasionally, and we do get cuts to other shots. But we have this like long hallway shot where we see the the nurse's desk at the very end there's cops and other people sitting around um but it's just it's one of these amazing tension building scenes where you keep a shot for so long that your mind kind of starts wondering and you're looking for what's going to happen and it is this nurse amy keating uh she eventually well, she eventually goes into a room because she hears something that is ice chinking in the yeah. glass, which is just great. It's wonderful. And then um, the jump scare of the patient waking up and being so upset about it. But it is it is an amazing storytelling type of device. Of like, what's your name? I'm reporting you. Amy Keating. And then she walks away. So we know one of her names starts with a K. Yep. So any perceptible like if you're picking up on that you go oh hold on let's watch it we see her check another room oh nothing and she locks the door we see the cop like someone talks to the cop and he gets up and goes away and then as she's leaving that locked room door we get the the snap zoom and a giant white figure with giant fucking shears coming at her head yeah this is all basically going in the the score yeah like crescendoing at that point it's it's so fucking great yeah a lot like the uh 
the cut earlier with the priests where it's just the sudden cut to them finding the body with the woman screaming over it. It's, it's a similar thing here where it's like the discovery of the body is over the sound of it is overlaid with the shot of the shears coming at her, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, the way that he's able to milk the tension of this from so far away is fucking incredible. Like, uh, and going into this movie, this is the one thing I knew about it was that it had a famous jump scare, and it, it's still so goddamn effective. Even when, like, I knew, the first time I saw this, I was expecting it. Um, it's still to me, I, I see this labeled as like the best jump scare of all time. Still, to me, the one that beats it is a movie we talked about a year ago, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, with Leatherface rushing at the camera with the chainsaw. Oh, great one. Yeah. Great one. Uh, but, I, yeah, this is Because you are, again, a similar thing. You're looking into that darkness yeah. for so long. Like, mm-hmm. when is it going to come? And when it does, it's it's intense. Um, we learned that she was slit down the middle all of her organs were extracted. We never find out what they did with the organs, but that right. it was filled with uh, her body cavity was filled with objects and resewn. And I love that Kinderman's like, well, what was it? It's like rosaries, Catholic rosaries. Yeah, fucked up. Insane. And then almost immediately yeah. too, they discovered Temple's body because he committed suicide. And I, yeah. It, it seems like an overdose intentional, I, I suppose. Um, Gemini Killer does say that it, w- it was, but I love yeah. that he's like, don't blame me for Temple. I did not do that at all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was another quote I written down. I'm trying to remember where it was. Um, is it about, like, a Dyer being buried or something? It says, vow of poverty disgusting okay so this is something that makes a lot more sense in the director's cut this is something that is clarified okay. so right after temple introduces the idea that like hey we have this guy that's claiming he's a gemini killer the first thing that kinderman does there's a cut scene where he's going through the 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 really thin file on him right and he decides to go uh because you know they're saying that he you know he looks like father Karras, um or he he has seen him at this point the first thing he does is he goes to the cemetery and they exhume Karis's grave, but they find okay. a body in it that they say is not him. And there's a little scene where he's talking to that same priest again, and they learn that there was this guy named Brother Fane who gets one line of reference in in the theatrical, but he was the pre- he was like this older priest who worked at the 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 at Georgetown. He was in charge of like sealing up the coffins. And he he disappeared on the night that Karis was buried, um, or one yeah I think yeah the night Karis was buried he disappeared and they assumed that he was an older guy he always said he wanted to die at home, and so they thought well we thought that he just he just kind of fucked off to like go die at home you know because he like lived out of state or something <laughs> uh, I know it's a very it's a very like novelist thing to include so much backstory about this priest we never see but it, it's his right. uh but it's his corpse in in Karis's grave and so he's talking okay. with the, the vow of poverty he's talking about like basically kill billing his way out of the out of the coffin yeah yeah uh we do uh we're in the interview interrogation with Dorif. Um, one of the most bizarre movie references in the world is where you have Brad Dourif saying child's play, <laughs> and then you cut to a small child with red hair. Yes, uh, and Brad Dourif had done child's play at this point, so 
exactly they knew what they were doing with yeah. that and it's maybe a little bit too much like a peek behind the curtain of like haha i'm being funny i like it man. maybe maybe peter blatty like Dude, i don't know i, I don't there's hate some, it i mean there's a it lot of movie references better. in this i i think that yes. uh so blatty just a little more backstory in him too i didn't know this until i i had listened to the freedom connection but aside from being a novelist he was a screenwriter and um, right. he he met William Friedkin when uh, they were both working on a different project, and there's a really funny story about it. Um, so like Friedkin is really, he's trying to get work. This is pre French Connection, and he's desperate to do anything, and he gets brought on to do. Oh God, I can't remember who. It's like a bigger celebrity, like a bigger star. He gets brought on to possibly direct something for this 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 guy, and. They get a script from like a, like a writer's room essentially, and the guy's like, "Okay, so we're gonna do this, right? We, we're all we're all set, and it's gonna be a big project. It's gonna be like you know a nice little like like notch in in Friedkin's career." But he hates the script. He says it's terrible, and he's just like, "So I decided to be honest." And he goes, "Listen." This script is the biggest piece of shit I've ever read in my life. And, like, the guy gets all pissed. He fires him. You know, he doesn't get this job. And Friedkin's just like, you know, should I have done it? Probably. Like, I really needed work at this point. But then, apparently, the script was written by Blatty. And Blatty approached him in the hallway afterwards and said, like, hey, we all knew it was terrible. Like, none of us were proud of this, like, you know, behind closed doors. Like, you know, I appreciate you being honest about it. And so that's how Blighty came to know Friedkin, and that's why he went to Friedkin with this with the book of The Exorcist and said, "I want you to direct it," because it's like you're not going to pull any punches. Like if you don't think it's going to work, you're going to tell people. So like that's right. where it came from. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, just all the Wonderful. movie references in this movie. It just Blighty is just a he's a cinephile clearly, and I think he just yeah. likes being cheeky with this stuff. He's he seems like a big nerd. Um, yeah. This is this is where Scott starts putting it together, and we're understanding that like Gemini Killer, Jason Miller, Patient X, uh, when the murders are happening, he's basically sleeping with like a deep rim thing. Like it is like his brain activity is higher while his heartbeat and breathing are like lower. All these weird things. So we're putting it together, and he says at some point like catatonics are the easiest to possess or something bizarre but we're understanding that these the little old ladies that we've met the the radio invisible radio one like he's able to project himself into her to control her and kill people um this is one where we see the old woman crawling yeah. on the ceiling great shot so fucking creepy mm-hmm. and there's another dead body and we see an old nurse walking uh with uh, another old woman and she gets in a car to go to kinderman's house there's the thing with kinderman tries to call his phone because he knows that his daughter is going to be attacked and he gets a busy signal but on the other end his wife hears the phone ring and his voice comes out of it saying oh a nurse is gonna come great stuff um, uh scott gets to his house well i want to back up uh there is a car chase chase in this movie and i just wonder if william peter blatty was like it's gonna be more thrilling than the french connection (laughs) yeah exactly he's wanting to try to one up 
Yeah. Yeah. William Friedkin. Uh, but the daughter is so nonchalant when Scott is, like, at the door with a gun. And she mm-hmm. opens, she's like, oh, dad's here. Well, then the <laughs> wife is like, well, what's this now? Just like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we get the catatonic nurse. Or she's one of the old women just in a nurse uniform. We have the Gemini voice coming out of her and saying, like, I wanted you to be here for it. And this, I think, is one of the roughest points of the movie, is just the way it looks when the grand... It's the grandmother that saves Julie yes. by, like, basically grabbing the top of her head and moving it out of the way as the big shears are coming for her. It's like a weird this speed ramping thing going so on. so close. Yeah, yeah, this movie is so close to being, like, an amazing... You put this on a pedestal, like, this is how movies should be made. But when that kind of scene happens, you're like, oh, wait, hold on. This it's, didn't work, did It's it? silly. Here's the thing, and, and we're, we have to get into it right now. We haven't even... We mentioned the casting of Father Morning, but we have not talked about him at all aside from that. But I think that this movie completely... Not completely. It, it falls apart in the third act. It's not terrible. Right. But it really... The last half of the third act. But I I even think, like, the last three minutes of it are amazing. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, look, there's really great stuff within this. The stuff that they reshot to add the exorcism, like, Blighty mentioned how when he first was told, like, hey, you're going to have to reshoot this and add an exorcism in there. Um, he wasn't happy about it, but then he decided, like, hey, you know what? No, this is an excuse to, like, d- to shoot a big, like, special effects-heavy climax, which is something he's always wanted to do. So he's like, okay, you know what? I can actually, I can pull this off. And he wasn't happy with the result of, like, uh, eventually. But within this, there's amazing things going on. Um, so essentially, like, yeah, the, the daughter gets saved, and then, uh, he collapses to his knees. The, the nurse collapses and just goes, like, father morning. And this priest we have yeah. seen maybe two other times throughout the movie, just kind of doing uh, some business. Very briefly. We've heard about him. We heard of that, like, he did an exorcism in Africa, like, 15 years ago. Yeah. And turned all of his hair white. Right. And we've seen him in his room, like, with a dead bird. Yes, exactly. Was, so there's, like, some um, foreshadowing you know, a little bit. Healing. Right. Right, right. Uh, but as he shows up, uh, there's the line, enter night, which is just really... <laughs> interesting comparatively come, uh, yeah like, come father morning enter night yeah it's pretty cheesy night, yeah. yeah um starts the exorcism there's a great shot of the fire uh in between them and the camera there's a bunch of cobras snakes yep. all around the ground not really there lightning um, <laughs> it's crazy right. it's fucking the, crazy well, the bible explodes yeah uh and it's so insane it they rip off his robe. He gets pushed into the ceiling to the point where his skin is attached <laughs> and he pulls it off. It's it's so fucking crazy. It, oh. it is crazy. But, like, to a point where I'm like, that's kind of cool. Like, it's yeah. a cool visual to have, like, your skin peeling from your head. Um, that's when Scott shows up. He sees the burned Bible, blood dripping from the ceiling. Pulls his gun, but then he gets, like, you know, pushed to the back of the wall. He has a great monologue. He talks about how he believes. This I believe in. I believe in death. I believe in disease. I believe in injustice and inhumanity, torture and anger and hate. I believe in murder. I believe in pain. 
I believe in cruelty and infidelity. I believe in slime and stink <laughs> and every crawling putrid thing. Every possible ugliness and corruption. You son of a bitch! I believe in you. Great. He's phenomenal. He's so phenomenal in this movie. Uh, as a counterpoint, <laughs> as a counterpoint, the director's cut, the nurse collapses and she yells out, or uh, Kinderman goes, Karis, because I, at, that, at that moment, Karis is, that's when Karis comes through. Okay. Then it, it cuts to Kinderman walking into the cell. There is maybe a couple lines back and forth. I can't remember exactly what even they say. Kinderman just fucking pulls his gun out and executes the Gemini killer in the cell. No exorcism, no crazy special effects, no speech from Kinnaman about believing. Just pulls his gun and says, oh, that's right. He says, uh, Karis, you're free now. He shoots him twice in the body and then once in the head as he falls over, which is kind of intense. But I have to imagine in the theatrical cut, they would have, of course, like maybe added score, color grading. It would have looked good because it wouldn't be VHS quality. But it is such an anticlimax compared to this. Um, yeah, the better version really is somewhere between the two of these because this is overblown and wild, especially for the movie that came before it. Um, well, if you gave more for morning to do, and but even yeah. thinking about it, like Marin, Marin, you get like a good chunk. The first like ten minutes is Marin, yeah. and he doesn't come back until the end. You you they mention him, and I like that the priests are like. Well, he's kind of old. Is he in good enough health? And they're like, well, you know, he's fucking digging in Iraq. Why wouldn't he be? Yeah. Uh, but he's not. That's the thing. He is, he is not up to it. Uh, well, we have the whole thing. The lightning comes down and takes out the floor. We have, it seems, all of his victims. Karis is on a cross getting, like, pushed up. Um, right. Very odd. But he's he's... He's crucified on the rowing oars. That's another very interesting detail about that one. Um, Morning's not actually dead. He tells Damien to fight, holds up a cross in the light, and uh, Karis comes back, comes through, and says, Bill, do it now! Shoot me! Kill me! Kill me! Do it now! And uh, as you said, we get a couple body shots, and then one right to the head, and it cuts automatically to... Was it a sunrise? Yeah. It's a sun in the sky. Um, and I love that it's it's so, so quick after that. It's that we see the cemetery. We see the gravestone. We see Kinderman. And who else was with him? It's Kinderman and somebody else standing uh... there. And, and then it just <laughs> cuts to credits. Yeah. It's so quick. I don't think it's morning. I It may be like... No, I mean, more, I, Morning, uh, I'm assuming, is dead as shit. Like, there's, I don't know how you I could survive so. that. Yeah. I think so. But, um, yeah, like, you you, you get out of it so quickly. Um, let's give some final thoughts and rate this movie. What should we rate it out of? Uh, carps. Bathtub lim- carps. That's not bad. I was going to say lemon drops, but That's I think too. bathtub carps is, is better. Uh, I am the host. I will go first. Uh, this is a visual novel, and it is glorious. I really love all of the decisions that Blatty made in this. Um, you can tell it's a little rough around the edges, but you have performances that pull it through. You have all these great monologues, 
Brad Dourif gets great monologues. You get Father Dyer with great monologues. George C. Scott gets amazing dialogues. So much characterization goes into each and every character. Uh, like you said, you just, a new place, you will flash to what's on the walls to like let us know that Dr. Temple is very narcissistic. He has um, uh, like a, a needle point or whatever that says uh, a psychotic is more neurotic than his doctor. Mm-hmm. Like you can, you have all these little things. Um, as we've said, there are some pretty big missteps, like the, just the effect of saving Julie. But on the other end of that, you have that long hallway shot um, of the jump scare. You have the POV of Kenderman coming into to Dyer's hospital room, and then immediately after the high corner shot of the three of them talking about his murder. It's so phenomenal. It is a little uneven in parts, but that kind of makes us uh, maybe a little bit more unsettled with what's happening in this movie. It is uh, a step down, which I think the ex- the first one is a perfect movie. As we talked about a little bit on this podcast, it may not be the scariest movie mm-hmm. of all time, but it is a movie that has probably scared the most amount of people. And um, this one's not very far behind it, in my opinion. I'm going 4.2 bathtub carps. Nice. All right. Uh, I mean, yeah, I just so much to agree with in that. Like, the visual novel aspect of it uh, is so fucking interesting. And there's just so many little details that add to that. But Blighty knows how to make it cinematic at the same time. Uh, there's just like novelistic touches. Every character feels like, you know, like they're being described as if you're in a novel. The little details about them, about the performances, uh, about the way that like the, the rhythm of the scene. Just like uh, I can picture this, the scene um, description in the, like, in the script. You know what I mean? Like the way that Temple is like sucking on the cigarette as he talks, like just a very specific rhythm of that. Um, lighting the one cigarette with the other, the note in the in the in the drawer. Uh, the pacing of, of of so much of it is just like getting absorbed into a novel, which I, I really love. At the same time, it's a little too long. The theatrical cut. Uh, and you can start to feel it, and I think part of it is the, is the pacing of this novel approach um, kind of does wear you down a little bit, uh, especially the second time he goes to talk to Brad Dourif in the cell. Uh, that one goes on for a long, long time, and uh, he does his, his best to make all that stuff visually interesting. I do love just the distance that they're at, um, complete opposite sides of the screen in this cramped room. We talked about that, you know, shooting wide you have angles and cramped spaces. Windows with like bright light coming down onto them perfectly. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, I if, if setting that there is curious about the director's cut, it's it's worth checking out some scenes. But ultimately, like without the Jason Miller approach, cutting into two actors and the voice modulation, it really takes away the power of those moments. And so any other addition, I don't think is worth it to get that stuff diminished. Um, to, it, 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 there's probably a, I, I imagine this already exists, but there has to be a fan-made cut that preserves a lot of the Jason Miller stuff, as well as some of the other cut scenes. Because um, that would be the best version of this for sure. 
so anyway, uh, I I think that this movie's really fucking great, especially the first two thirds of it. And Blatty to me, he's such a fascinating person. He was deeply religious himself. Like the, the whole reason he wrote The Exorcist is because. It's based off of a, of a quote-unquote true story of an actual possession of a 14-year-old boy that the story of that just rattled him to his core. He was given the opportunity to like really read into it and uh, to research it and then wrote his book based off of his research. And so that first movie really contains something like we always talk about how it feels like it's it's a there's a groundedness to it despite being fantastic and about religion. Um I don't think that ground that grounded nature is here at all. Uh, I don't know if I wanted right. it to be here. There's something about this movie that feels so much more like. I mean, this is literally what it is. It's a novelist's creation. It's his original idea. You know, uh, obviously you got some sprinkling of the Zodiac in there, but for the most part, it's Blatty coming up with stuff. And I can feel that in the story, especially in the way that he doesn't exactly have a satisfying ending in any version of this. Um, like, I don't think the ending in For Either One really works. I love um, Kinderman's speech, but there is something about making him the main character and the story and how it's presented that doesn't fully gel for me. Um, you know, you really understand the crisis of faith that, that Karis is going through in that first one. It's tied up with his mother and it's tied up with his upbringing, right? And it's it's his guilt over, like, why am I wearing this collar how can I be helpful right. to people if I can't, if I don't even believe myself? Um, the first one has such a great buildup, especially with yeah. Karis and his faith, but also with, with Reagan, and that we're going to all these different doctors. She's having to do all these different tests to, like, rule out things, and to the point where they're like, well, the doc- even the doctors are like, maybe you should look into getting a priest to do an yes. exorcism. Yeah, exactly. Like, we don't have that... Like, this one is more of a detective story, but there is less and less is, of that build-up. Yeah, which is great. It's a great detective story. That's, that's that's my positive about it, is that I think it's a wonderfully done detective story with a supernatural bent. I think, in, in that sense, it, it, you know, it's, it's almost something like uh, Angel Heart, you know, with Robert De Niro and uh, Mickey Rourke. It's, it's a little something like yeah. that. It's just, it's got a little more sincerity in the supernatural, you know, quote-unquote supernatural Are you- Aspect. Not going to mention Lisa Bonet, really? <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, it's been a while since I've seen it. So anyway, okay, I'm wrapping this up. I think this is a great movie. I think it's it's, it's just flawed in a lot of ways. I think that there could have been something done to make the ending a lot more impactful. I just don't think the emotion of it really comes through, sadly, in in either one. Um, I'm going to go f- just a straight four bathtub carps. Um, I think there's such strong stuff here, and it, it and sadly drops the ball, but it's still an incredibly entertaining and interesting movie. A little bit of thought provoke, you know, not as thought provoking as the original in terms of like, well, hey, you know, what is the nature of good and evil in the world? But it gets at it, it hints at it enough, and I can't say enough great things about George C. Scott and Fa- and Ed Flanders in the beginning. Like their dynamic is so fucking great, ah, just perfect. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I'm really glad we talked about this one because I hadn't seen it until Joe Bob covered it. Same, uh, I guess yeah. a couple years ago, and then I was I was floored by again George C. Scott's performances and a lot of the directorial choices that Blatty made, and it's um, uh, it's it's a it's a real gem of a movie. 
But Greg, do you want to let us know what we're talking about next week for Three Lie? Yeah, so this week we talked about an acclaimed first film that led to a, a string of potentially dog shit sequels. And we're not changing that for next week. I want to talk about Return of the Living Dead 3. Which is uh, the first one, uh, a bonding moment, like one of our favorite movies, really. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, ooh, uh, I mean, top 10 movies of all time, top five movies of all time. Yeah. And I've never seen yeah, part three I, because part two is so bad that I, <laughs> I I couldn't go on. I don't think I've seen the the sci-fi originals, but we'll talk about that later. So um, thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe anywhere you get this podcast. Uh, you can email us, weeklypodcastmassacre at gmail.com. We have both Twitter and Instagram, both at weeklymassacre. You are Anderson 19 on Letterboxd. I am Murph and Turf. So please head us up. Let us know if you've ever become addicted to lemon drops, if you've ever taken a vow of poverty, or if you've ever been mistaken for a dead serial killer. I want to hear from you. Mm. But until next time, always remember, oh, a few boos from the gallery I see. Uh, on the serial killer front, real quick, I did see the very disturbing fact that Jeffrey Dahmer would play this and watch it with his victims as he was yep. like doing his thing he loved it he also had contacts that he would put in to uh you know look like the yellow yeah i think real fucked up guy yeah yeah anyway uh yeah. we're fine <laughs> <laughs> bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.